Well, hello, Hellos Church. It's good to see you all. Not sure what to expect in days like these, but I'm glad you guys have been able to make it out and, and join us for these moments. We want to make the most of this moment as we consider all that is happening around us and as we uh, pray, continue to pray for those who are falling ill. We want to pray for those who are treating the ill. Uh, we want to pray for this season to be short and that it would pass fast. And so, um, again, thank you for making it a priority, and I'm glad that God's grace enabled you to be able to be here and spend this time because there are things that we can do together uh, that nothing can replace as it relates to being the church and as it relates to gathering together in worship settings like this. Uh, so with that said, let me invite you to grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you've been journeying with us, you know over the past several weeks we've been in reintroducing or kind of redressing our church's core values, focusing on kind of our DNA and that, that God's kind of been working within us and, and drawing out of us the longer we have journeyed with Jesus together. So we've been putting four images before us, and each one of these images represent a core value that we share in our church. The first image we talked about a few weeks ago was the image of the table. And we recognize that Jesus often leverages ordinary moments for extraordinary purposes. And as those who uh, make it our mission to serve Jesus and to follow Jesus in this world, we want to go and do likewise. And so we want to leverage ordinary moments for extraordinary purposes. We want to turn our tables most immediately into places of grace and community and mission. And then we introduce the image of the towels, knowing that we serve a Savior who entered the world not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. And as those who are being served by Jesus and salvation, those who are being affected by his grace and transformed by his grace, we are energized to serve one another and to serve those around us. And of course, as we engage in service, as we take up our towels, we don't serve in according to an ethic of reciprocity. We serve according to the ethic of grace that Jesus is cultivating within his people. That enables us to serve not simply those that we like, but to serve those who don't like us. So we can see with Jesus when he says, I want you to bless those who persecute you. I want you to love your enemies. This radical culture of grace that Jesus brought into the world with his kingdom, that's what energizes our service so that we take up our towels and we wash the feet of anyone we come in contact with. And then the third image that we looked at last week was the image, probably the most quirky of them all, but I think it's the most important. That's the image of the tourniquet. And you know that the tourniquet is a device that helps bind up wounds. And we said last week that a person's deepest wounds are worship wounds. Whether they are the result of a person's own misplaced worship or whether those wounds are the result of someone else's misplaced worship and the way that they've treated them or affected them in some discernible way. A human being's deepest wounds are worship wounds. But one of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has this uncanny ability of, to meet us in the deepest places and to bring healing to our hearts and our souls, restoring wholeness within us as we journey with him and as we are being served by him. This is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Jesus says, or it says that Jesus was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. We are healed by his wounds. So we value the tourniquet. And then the fourth and final image that we're going to put before us as we think about what we value, what we cherish as a church, is the image of the toast. Now, I asked a friend recently, what toast did, does he most remember? And he looked at me and he said, cinnamon, 1992. I'll let that sit there for a minute. I said, man, that's not the kind of toast I'm talking about. Right? I'm not talking about cinnamon toast from many years back. I'm talking about those, that, that celebratory act that moves people in an upward direction. That celebratory act that takes place at weddings and other special occasions where life-giving words of encouragement and life-giving words of honor are spoken and, and shared with others. I'm talking about the type of toast that tells stories of things that have happened in the past while at the same time anticipating a bright future for those being addressed. It's this toast that moves in an upward direction that we want to allow this image to be seared into our hearts, recognizing how we are to relate to one another in the church. And there are many passages in the old, in the, throughout the scriptures that uh, we could unpack, that we could use to unpack this value, that we could look at to explore what does it mean to, to value the toast? What does it mean to be a celebratory, upward, uh, a church of upward mobility, so to speak? And the reason why there is so much in the scriptures about this value is because the Bible addresses life in the real world. 
the Bible talks to us uh, in the midst of a real world with real challenges. And the Bible knows that as you and I journey through a fallen world that, that we're going to face challenges. And on many days we can grow discouraged. There are moments even when we feel defeated by what's happening in life or what's happening in this world. And, and so the Bible has a lot to say about how we help one another persevere in faith. Has a lot to say about how we address one another in those moments. And so just knowing that, I had to take some time, step back this week, and just pray through, Lord, what passage do you want us to zero in on? What, what passage would, would be best for us to look at right now? Because there's so many in the scriptures about encouragement. And, and I thought I was going to be teaching a text dealing with encouragement and just unpacking that word for a while. But, but God kind of surprised me by shifting gears. He shifted gears on me Monday evening when he uh, began to draw my attention to the reality of spiritual gifts. But not just spiritual gifts in general, but one spiritual gift in particular, that is the spiritual gift of prophecy. And there's lots of reasons why I believe the Lord has led me in this direction and has led us to come around this theme tonight. And one of them is that spiritual gifts are ways in which the Spirit ministers among us. If you want to know what a spiritual gift is, it's, it's the Holy Spirit showing up and doing things among us that will help us grow in an upward direction. That there are ways that God's Spirit moves in us to build our faith and to impress upon us the, the heartfelt reality of God's love and the heartfelt reality of God's affections for us in Christ. Spiritual gifts are defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, when we're told that a spiritual gift is a manifestation of the Spirit that is, given to the, that is given to each person for the common good. And then we're going on, and then it goes on to tell us the different kinds of ways the Spirit may show up, different kinds of ways the Spirit may work to build up our faith. It says, To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. And so when we talk about spiritual gifts, we're talking about real-time manifestations of the Holy Spirit's presence. Ways in which the Holy Spirit shows up to minister among us so that we might be built up, so that we might be toasted, so to speak. So that faith may be strengthened, so that our lives may be edified, so that faith can be exercised in every moment of every day. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, we're actually commanded to desire this type of activity. We're commanded to pursue and to desire activities of the Holy Spirit, manifestations of the Spirit in our midst. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1 says. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Now, if you're looking at that in the original language, you're going to read words that are written in what's called the imperative mood, meaning that this portion of the verse is a command. It is as command and as, as sure and as fixed as the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we need to pay attention to the things that we are commanded in Scripture. We need to pay attention to the things that God has is calling us to and commanding of us as we follow Jesus. And so that got me stepping back and thinking, well, so why are we commanded to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts? Why are we commanded to long for the manifestations of the Holy Spirit among us? And there's lots of reasons, lots of ways in which that can be answered, but here's the one the Spirit brought, my, brought to my mind this past week. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, this is what we read. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So that's a verse that's nestled in a passage dealing with spiritual warfare as, as Paul's writing to the church. And he's communicating these big realities, these sweeping themes all throughout the book of Ephesians. And he comes to the end and he starts talking about this idea of spiritual warfare. And he says in verse 16 that in every situation that is good or bad, that is casual and normal or abnormal and extraordinary, there's not a single situation where faith is not required, where faith is not needed to be exercised. 
And the reason we're told that in every situation we must take up, lift up the shield of faith is because there's an adversary who is hurling flaming arrows at us. And so you think about that imagery, these flaming arrows being launched towards us from this aggressive adversary who is scheming against us, who is bombarding us with these flaming arrows. You know, perhaps, that these arrows can take many forms in our lives. That these things that the enemy is hurling at us at all times, without stop, in an unceasing fashion, they take the form of deception. That he's constantly trying to lie to us about how loved we are by God. He's constantly trying to lie to us about how desired we are by Jesus. He's constantly trying to lie to us about Jesus' work being enough for us in every moment of every day. That's fiery arrows that are being shot in our direction. He also takes the form of accusation. He accuses us, seeking to condemn us. It takes, these arrows take the form of temptation as, as the enemy tries to lure us away from the ethics of the kingdom of God. Lure us away from ethics that embody the holiness of our God in practical, tangible ways in this world. These arrows take the form of division when he really goes after churches to divide churches amongst themselves. Causing us not to want to build each other up, not to toast each other, but to tear each other down. This divisive activity that the enemy sows, these flaming arrows that he is launching uh, into our lives and into our community. According to this verse, this has happened constantly. So what that means is that in every situation, we are to take up the shield of faith. But what enables us to do that? And what's the danger if we don't? If you were to read through the Gospels and pay attention to the ways that Jesus interacts with those who are being harassed by the enemy. Those who may be uh, under deep influence and under deep bondage by the enemy. There's, There's a couple of words that traditionally are used to describe that. When we talk about demonic activity in people's lives, we use two terms typically. One term is possession. You might have heard of that. You've probably seen it dramatized by Hollywood. And the other term is oppression. Possession is the enemy coming in, taking over and controlling us. And oppression is the enemy just kind of holding us back from the outside in different kinds of ways. And those tend to be the two words that are used when we talk about demonic activity in our lives or in the life of the church. Well, a person can be possessed or a person can be oppressed. And usually when we talk about it in those long, along those lines, we say, okay, well, if you're a Christian, you can only be oppressed. But if you're non-Christian, that's when you can be possessed because you don't have the Holy Spirit. And, and I think over time, really kind of using those two words, kind of setting the agenda for how we talk about demonic activity has really done ourselves and has done the, our church a disservice. Because there's a much better word that we can use to describe what is happening when the enemy is establishing strongholds or when the enemy is scheming against us. And it's not so much language of possession and oppression. A third word that kind of carves a road down the middle that makes us aware of the fact that this can happen to anyone is the word demonization. And the word demonization means that the enemy can scheme against us in such a way that establishes strongholds in our lives where unholy habits become normalized and heart struggles become uh, ordinary and we don't realize that the enemy has gained ground in our lives, that he is demonizing us in certain ways. And, And so we want to be aware of this. There's a reason why. There's a reason why Paul had to write this passage to the church in Ephesians. And it's not because the church was off limits to the enemy. The reason he had to write this passage is because the church was the primary target of the enemy. And so if we're not aware of these dynamics, we are going to become vulnerable to all sorts of demonization, vulnerable to all sorts of influence that the enemy can exert in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our communities, all across the board. And so think about it. When faith is not being encouraged, when faith is not being strengthened, when faith is not being supported, when faith is not being lifted up, I believe we become vulnerable. Because in those moments, our shields drop. And when our shield drops, arrows start landing. And when arrows start landing, fires start burning. And when fires start burning, breaches in our walls and in our ranks are, start opening. And when those breaches are made, then strongholds start forming and our adversary is able to exert influence and gleefully wreak havoc in our lives and in our church. 
And so the reason the shield of faith must be lifted is because when the shield of faith is not lifted, we start taking hits. And the more hits we take, the more vulnerable we become, the more breaches, the more possible breaches can be established and influence can be exerted. It's kind of like a hidden virus on a computer. When the enemy's strongholds cause us to operate suboptimally and we don't even realize it. And so we simply normalize the abnormal. We justify what shouldn't be justified. And until we realize that something isn't right, our unholy habits and our heart struggles just remain par for life's course. And our experience with freedom and joy and the abundant life of John 10.10, that experience becomes elusive. That experience seems like a pipe dream because we don't even realize how suboptimally we are experiencing the reality of God or the reality of or the life that Jesus lived, died, and rose to provide. And so what this means is that one of the reasons we're commanded to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts is so that we can better lift up our shields of faith, so that we can defend ourselves, so to speak, in every situation, that we might flourish rather than flounder as we journey through this world. And spiritual gifts are designed to help us do that. How do you lift up your shield of faith? Well, you become ministered to by other people who are leveraging spiritual gifts. You start being ministered to by the Holy Spirit who is showing up and doing things to encourage you, to strengthen you, and to comfort you so that your shields can be lifted. And you can ward off these flaming arrows of the evil one. And so that's one of the many reasons why we want to pursue spiritual gifts. It's one of the many reasons we want the Holy Spirit to minister among us to us in dynamic ways. But what's interesting, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, he says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but then the sentence keeps going. And he makes this statement, especially that you might prophesy. That there's something about prophecy that is especially uh, beneficial to us and especially beneficial to the life of the church. And then you read through the passage and Paul proceeds to contrast prophecy with the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. Now, there are, reason, there are reasons for that that, are, that seem to be contextual. That the church in Corinth held the gift of tongues in an unhealthy high regard. There was a thought, it seems, that those who spoke in tongues were considered more spiritual. They were considered more mature. They were considered to be more in tune with what God is doing. And, and so as people would gather together, they would speak in tongues, not because they were concerned about those around them. They would speak in tongues because they wanted to elevate themselves in the eyes of those around them. And so they took a good gift and they began to use it in a bad way. And much of what Paul is doing in chapters 12 through 14 is correcting that. He's correcting uh, abuse of spiritual gifts in the life of the church. Now, when it comes to spiritual gifts and talking about these dynamics, I know that abuse can happen. And I know that there's all kinds of ideas about what spiritual gifts are and how they should be enlisted and employed out there. But I just want to mention two ways in which spiritual gifts can can be abused. One way that spiritual gifts can be abused is what you see in the book of Corinthians, and that's uh, the abuse of misuse. It's just misusing the good gifts that God has given to us, which seems to be what was happening in Corinth. But what's interesting, although Paul's aware that spiritual gifts are being misused in this church, he's also aware that they're happening. And so when he writes to the church, it's very important that you realize he doesn't write a cease and desist letter. He doesn't write them and write to them and say, okay, I want you to stop everything that you were doing. Put a stop to it now. Do not pursue love and desire spiritual gifts any longer. He doesn't write, he doesn't remedy their, their situation by calling for a cessation of spiritual gifts. He remedies the situation by correcting their use of spiritual gifts. He still wants them to pursue them and use them and desire them, but he wants to, them to pursue to pursue them and use them and desire them in the most helpful, upward-moving way possible. And so earlier in chapter 12, verse 1, he writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. Then in chapter 14, he commands the church to pursue love and to desire them. So if there's an abuse of misuse, the, the counsel isn't, okay, stop using them. The counsel is, okay, let's get back on course. Let's think well about why God gives us spiritual gifts, why the Spirit ministers to us, among us, in these particular kinds of ways. But then a second way that spiritual gifts can be abused 
is the opposite side of the spectrum, and that's the abuse of neglect. You and I remaining ignorant of how spiritual gifts should be pursued. We remaining ignorant about how spiritual gifts should be desired. We remain ignorant on how spiritual gifts should be used to move the church in an upward, Godward direction. Then that, too, is a form of abuse. And so we don't want to do either of those, right? We want to read the scriptures, study the scriptures. We want to examine our experiences with God. And we want to align ourselves as best we can with what the scriptures teach on these matters. Now, I do not have time tonight to dive into the tongues portion of today's passage. Uh, a few years ago, I did teach on the gift of speaking in tongues and what that is and all those dynamics. And that teaching is available online. And when we uh, post today's teaching and today's messages, we'll provide a quick link to that dynamic so you can see kind of where we're coming from when, we, when this spiritual gift is there. But tonight, I don't have time to dive into that. But you can check it out online later if you so choose. But today, I want us to focus on um, the one that is most the one that is best conveyed through the image of the toast, and that's this idea of prophecy. This is the one that we are especially encouraged to pursue and desire and to use well. <laughs> now, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is one of the most difficult chapters in all the New Testament because it puts tongues and prophecies together. And tongues and prophecy are probably the two most uh, controversial of all the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. And so I love that God puts all this into one chapter for us to deal with. But uh, one of the reasons why prophecy is so controversial is because by the time we arrive at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there's already an understanding of what prophecy is. Or at least what it was prior to the New Testament. And these, these assumptions we make about the word prophecy, that can, that can skew our understanding, it can skew our appreciation, and it can create controversy over what Paul's talking about here in chapter 14. And the reason why there was such widespread knowledge is because the Old Testament is full of prophets and prophecies. There's a whole range of books stretching from Isaiah to Malachi, a whole section of books in the Old Testament that are referred to as the prophets. Now, one of the reasons some people do not believe in the spiritual gift of prophecy, that it is a legitimate gift uh, today, is because they equate what Paul is talking about in this chapter with what happened in the Old Testament. And some of you may be tempted to think along those lines, and my hope tonight is to persuade you otherwise. But I want to do that by helping you understand that uh, a couple of disclaimers, well, a few disclaimers. Prophecy today or prophecy that is talked about in the book of 1 Corinthians is not to be viewed as identical with Old Testament prophecy. And there's lots of reasons for that, one of which is that prophecy occupied one of three anointed offices amongst God's people back in the day. There were three anointed leaders, anointed uh, leaders of people who served God in particular ways that, that they did so under the power and the energy of the Holy Spirit. You had prophets, priests, and kings. Now, priests were guys like Aaron who mediated Israel's relationship with God. They oversee the sacrificial system and, and took care of the ceremonial laws for God's people. And the second office was that of the king. And these were guys like David who would rule God's people according to covenantal parameters, making sure God's people was living in light of the covenant that was made between God and his people. That was the king's job to encourage that fidelity. But then there were prophets Prophets like Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, and others. And these guys were used by God to deliver God's word and God's revelation to God's people. These guys spoke with an unrivaled authority that cannot be matched. And what they said were, was true and what they said would come true. And what they said and what they wrote in the Old Testament is still coming true today. And like priests and kings, prophets were anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what they were called to do for God's people. And there's a moment in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, when Moses is thinking about this, and he's saying, I, I really wish that all of God's people had God's spirit like this. Listen to what he says. If only all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would place his spirit on them. And that was a, a desire that Moses wanted to see. And so that means that not everybody had the spirit like the prophets in the Old Testament. It means not all people were prophets. Not all people could speak authoritatively on God's behalf back in the day. So it was an exclusive role carried out by a select small group of people. 
However, the prophets did anticipate a day when that would change. Like Moses, they wanted to see a new day. They wanted to see a new day where all of God's people would be filled and anointed and energized by God's spirit. One of the prophets, a guy named Joel, would go so far to say this in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. And so he spoke this prophetic word. And we know that that word was fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That moment after Jesus ascended into heaven, his spirit would descend and indwell and energize and anoint all of God's people, not just some select leaders. At that time, God's spirit would anoint us like he anoints all those who were leading and ruling in the history of Israel. And this means that from that point forward, the spiritual gift of prophecy, according to Acts 2 and according to Joel 2, that the spiritual gift of prophecy could potentially be exercised by anyone who had the spirit. And Paul affirms this reality in chapter verse 5 where he makes this aspirational wish, I wish all of you prophesied. And he's affirming the fact that all of you have the Spirit, and I wish all of you would especially desire this winning. And we're reminded in that moment that spiritual gifts are the great equalizer in the life of the church. That the Holy Spirit now anoints and empowers all of God's people, men and women, young and old, rich and poor. The Holy Spirit does not discriminate. That all who are trusting in the gospel, believing in Jesus, may be anointed and filled by the Spirit of God. And so prophecy today is not identical with the Old Testament prophecy in part because it's not restrictive. It's not restrictive like it was then. We live in a new day, a new era, post-resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And we want to take advantage of all the privileges we have being alive at this point in time. But another thing we need to say is that prophecy today is not identical with the Old Testament because it is not. And this is one of the reasons why most people buck against it. It is not uniquely authoritative. What Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is not uniquely authoritative. Prophets of old spoke with divine authority. Their words carried the full weight of God's personal and purposeful revelation. And because of this, that made prophecy and just being a prophet risky business. So that if you were one to stand up and claim to speak on God's behalf, you were held accountable to what you said. And if you ever said something that did not come to fruition, if you ever made a false prophecy, then the consequence of that was condemnation. The consequence of that was death. And so false prophets in the Old Testament were regularly stoned. They were put to death. It was a big deal to be a prophet, and it carried serious consequences to be a false prophet. And one of the reasons why this is so significant is because what God's anointed prophets of old spoke is later what they would write down and all of that would come to make up the Holy Scriptures. It would come to make up the Old Testament. Now, this means that the prophets of old carried with them an authority that those of us who may operate according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we just don't carry. An authority that we don't have. And there's a clue to this. If you look down in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you drop all the way down to verse 38, listen to what Paul says as he's drawing a distinction between him and those who may be exercising the spiritual gift of prophecy in Corinth. Listen to what he says. He says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that I write to you that what I write to you is the Lord's command. And if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. And so what Paul's doing there is he's appealing to a unique authority that he did not share with those who were engaging in the spiritual gift of prophecy in the church at Corinth. He's recognizing that he carries an authority that they do not carry. And when Paul makes that statement, he's making that statement on the basis of the fact not that he is a prophet like Isaiah or he is a prophet like Moses. He's making that statement on the basis that he's an apostle. New Testament apostles are the counterparts to Old Testament prophets. When it comes to authority, unique unrivaled authority in the life of the church. It is Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. They operate on the same plane. And the reason why this is true is because these are the writers who would give us the Bible. 
This is why in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we're told that when the church was birthed, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Apostolic writings is what comprised the New Testament. Those who shared that unique relationship with Jesus, they carried the authority of the Old Testament prophets forward. So that you get to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Listen to what it says. We're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Do you see the connection? Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, they are counterparts to one another. So this means that the spiritual gift of prophecy, whatever it's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, this spiritual gift must submit to the unique authority of the Holy Scriptures. That prophetic utterances... Words that are spoken do not carry the same weight today, nor do they occupy the same position of authority in the church as the Bible. And so practically speaking, here's what this means for you and I. Practically speaking, this means that we do not look to prophecy today to determine our doctrine or our ethical priorities and practices. We do not depend upon the spiritual gift of prophecy to determine who we are to be as the church. All of that has already been determined. All of that has already been declared by the unique authoritative writings of Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. This is a very important principle for you and I to get lodged into our heads before we start moving into pursuing and squaring up with the spiritual gift of prophecy. A few years back, there was a pastor out of Franklin, Tennessee who shifted gears in his church, and he led his church in the direction of, of affirming same-sex marriage. Now, that decision to lead the church in that direction, that's not what surprised me. I think that's a decision that's going to be made a lot because I think there's lots of factors that play into that. But what surprised me was reading his rationale. It was reading the authority that he appealed to to lead the church in that direction. When he announced to his church that they were moving in that way, he didn't attempt to build a case from the Scriptures. He didn't argue from the Bible. He did not say this is what the Bible teaches, therefore we're doing this. And this is a pastor, remember, right? If a pastor has one job, that's it. This would be like Russell Wilson stepping out onto the field to play quarterback without a football. If you don't bring your ball to the game, you shouldn't be allowed to play. And so this pastor was making a case for same-sex marriage, and he was building it not only according to the authority of Scripture, which is his one job, is to teach the Bible and to allow the church to live under and live out the authority of the scriptures. Instead, what he did was he appealed to an epiphany. He took a story from Luke 24 about two disciples suddenly realizing they were walking with the risen Jesus, and he drew a parallel saying, well, he'd had a similar experience, and that his church and other churches should actively endorse same-sex marriage by affirming and officiating them, not because of what he thought the scriptures taught, but because of an epiphany he had that drove him to speak authoritatively on God's behalf. But here's the deal. Epiphanies, anecdotes, impressions, and experiences should never be drawn upon to determine doctrine. They should never be drawn upon to determine the ethical priorities of the church. That authority belongs to the Bible alone. If we don't get there, we don't get anywhere. We have to allow the scriptures to occupy its position in the church as our authority. This means that prophecy today, the spiritual gift of prophecy and every other spiritual gift, must be submissive to and a servant of the scriptures. In every moment of every day, prophecy, spiritual gift, submits to and serves everything that has been declared in the Bible. And so those are some important disclaimers for us to consider. And with that in mind, let's now look at the spiritual gift of prophecy, which isn't identical with Old Testament prophecy. It's not identical with apostolic authority. And if that's the case, then what is it that we are supposed to desire? What is it that we are supposed to practice? What is it that we're supposed to use to toast one another? Well, what's going to move us in an upward direction? Look at verse 3. It says that the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. Then in verse 4, it says, the one who prophesies builds up the church, moves the church in an upward, Godward direction. It toasts, so to speak. And so here's how I will define spiritual, the spiritual gift of prophecy. This is the definition that I operate from and that our church will operate from. The spiritual gift of prophecy happens when we receive words from God for others. 
We receive words from God for others. And these words are intended to strengthen, encourage, and console. They are designed to build up the church, to edify the church. Now, these words can take many forms. Let's think about some of the nature of these words that we might receive from God for others in this kind of way. Many times, these words may consist of particular passages that the Lord impresses upon us. Particular passages that the Lord may give us that's needed for, by somebody else. A couple of weeks ago, I was having a hard time sleeping. I was wrestling through uh, some anxieties stemming from some interpersonal conflicts and things like that. And, and so I, haven't, I wasn't sleeping. I was very anxious. I was very, my mind was running, a, running in too many different directions. And I shared with a pastor friend of mine what I was struggling with, and I was asking for prayer. Then the next morning, he sent me a text, and he dropped Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, onto my phone. And with no other comments, he just dropped that one verse and I turned to the passage and I read the words that strengthened, encouraged, and comforted my soul. I read, you will keep the mind, God will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. And in that moment, I was reminded that, or I, was, I realized that I had not been trusting God with that situation. And, and so perfect peace was lacking. I was anxious. I couldn't sleep. And this word was given. I read it. I reflected upon it. And it ministered to me in the deep places of my soul. And that night when I went to bed, I slept great. I slept great having received a timely word from God through the ministry of a friend. And then a few days later, to my surprise, that word had a ripple effect. Because a few days later, I found myself in a conversation with another anxious disciple who was having a hard time. And as I was listening to him share his struggles, I was asking the Holy Spirit, give me words for this guy. Give me words that will help him. Give me words that will minister to him. And as I was engaged in that conversation, the Spirit seemed to impress upon me Isaiah 26 3 and I gave that verse to him and he opened it and he read it and you could see the weights lifted off his shoulders as he was ministered to in that moment when it comes to prophetic words that we receive from God for others understand that they are timely words they are timely words that remind us that God is not remote they assure us that God is near that he is paying attention to us and he speaks in a timely fashion through the spiritual gift of prophecy. Now, when it comes to this gift, understand that that's the safe world. You know, that, that kind of description of this spiritual gift is, is the safe zone. There's not a lot of controversy there. But I don't think that's the only way the spiritual gift of prophecy happens. I don't think this gift only operates in the way where we receive particular passages that the Lord impresses upon us. I believe when you think about this gift and you see the way it's used in the scriptures and even from experiences that these kinds of words may also consist of particular insights that the Lord may grant us for the sake of others. That the Lord gives us insight to certain situations and circumstances, to certain concealed realities that the Lord brings us into a knowledge and into an awareness of so that we might better minister to those around us or those that those insights concern. One of the classic examples of this would come out of the Old Testament when a guy named Nathaniel interacts with King David. He interacts with King David after King David committed murder and adultery, and rather than confessing and, and repenting of that, he tried to conceal it. And so David lived in the dark. He kept it all there, but God loved David too much to let that continue. And because God loved David, he gave Nathaniel insight into what was going on in David's life so that Nathaniel could go and have an important conversation with David that would draw him out of the darkness and into the light. And that's exactly what Nathaniel does. He goes to David and they have a one-on-one -on -one conversation where Nathaniel tells him a story and he asks him some questions. And these questions solicit from David a confession, solicit from David repentance. These questions draw David out of the darkness and into the light as he repented and found rest uh, restoration to his intimacy with his God and restoration to the role that he was to play in the life of Israel, all coming about because the prophet Nathaniel was given insight into David's life and into David's situation. Now at the risk of telling too many personal stories, at times in my own life, God has given me particular insight into friends' lives. 
There was one friend in particular who was concealing sin. And as he was concealing sin, engaged in some things in the dark, it was slowly destroying him. And one day God made me aware of it on only the ways that God could as he was making me aware of what was happening. I, I became burdened by it. I became grieved by it. And I just kept talking to the Lord. I said, Lord, are you giving me this insight because you want me to talk to my friend? And I asked God for permission to go and to have that conversation. I wanted to make sure that God was giving me this insight because he wanted me to go and talk to my friend. And the reason why I did that is because sometimes God grants us knowledge or insight into particular situations, not so that we can run into a confrontation, but so that we can have a better idea how to pray for someone. And we can have a better idea how to uh, show patience with someone who we know may be struggling with something or having a hard time. It may be a word of knowledge. It might not be a word of prophecy. So I asked the Lord for permission, and he gave it to me, and I went to my friend and had a conversation with him. And I tried to approach it the same way Nathaniel did. I just asked questions. I asked questions, and those questions solicited his self-disclosure, and my friend came clean. He confessed. He began to repent, and he was overwhelmed in that moment, overwhelmed by the fact that God would love him so much that he would make me aware of his struggles, struggles that I had no idea or I had no reason to know of if not from the Holy Spirit. And the whole reason God did that wasn't because he wanted to bring shame into this man's life. It's because he wanted to bring freedom and liberation to this man's life. That God loved him too much to leave him in the dark. And in love for him, he granted me insight into what was going on. My friend responded positively in that moment. Not everybody does. Not everybody responds positively in those moments. But my friend did because he knew that what was happening in that moment was a ministry to him that would be good for him. And so he received my words with in a way that strengthened him and encouraged him and comforted him as he stepped into the light, finding himself deeply loved by God and rescued from self-destruction. Now, when it comes to these particular kinds of insights, now understand that the Lord may give these to us. When he does, understand that they're not always controversial, that this spiritual gift isn't always bent in that direction. It doesn't always involve confrontation of things that are concealed. Many times when the Spirit gives this kind of insight, it's to confirm what God is already doing, to bring assurance into one another's life about the love that God has for them and the direction, perhaps, that God is leading and guiding them. When I was praying through planting a church here in Seattle, it was one particular day where I was sitting at a desk in my office at the church we were part of, and I was just praying through the process, thinking about Seattle and and then I get this random Facebook message from a friend I hadn't talked to in 10 years. And she drops this message in my inbox, and she just asks, Hey, Andrew, what are you praying through right now? And then followed that with another question. Are you thinking about planting a church? And then she went one step further. She says, If you are thinking about planting a church, have you thought about planting a church in the Pacific Northwest? And I was taken aback because that's exactly what I was praying through in that moment. That's exactly what I was wrestling through in that moment. And and so I called her up, and we had a conversation. And over the course of that conversation, she shared words with me that confirmed what God was doing in my life, words that strengthened me and encouraged me to be able to make the decision to uproot my family with a daughter who had just been born, only a couple of months old, and relocate them and replant them in a new city to try to plant a church, something that had that word not been affirmed in that kind of way, I'm not sure I'd have the courage or the strength to have followed through with. Now, I know these kinds of stories can raise questions in people's minds. They, they maybe even rouse anxiety, as perhaps you've seen the spiritual gift of prophecy be misused and abused, and, and it certainly can be. This gift can be manipulated. This gift can be used to mess with people. This gift can be misinterpreted. It can be misapplied. There's all kinds of room for error when this gift is being exercised, and the reason for that is because the Holy Spirit isn't the only one who speaks to people. The Holy Spirit isn't the only one who speaks. God isn't the only one who's talking to us. But prophetic words, this gift, are, they contain timely words, but they also contain truthful words, meaning the words we receive from God in this way are words that never subtract from, they never add to, they never contradict anything that God has already spoken. But with this in mind, you must understand that prophetic words must always be discerned before they are affirmed. 
They must be discerned before being affirmed. This is what we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. But test or discern all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. We must discern whether or not what's being spoken to us in those moments squares with what we already know to be true about the Bible. This means the better you know your Bible, the better you will be at discerning prophetic speech. The better you know your Bibles, the better you will be to, at enjoying this gift and not being threatened by it. If someone were to come up to you and say, I believe God has told me to leave my wife for another, you can rest assured that that's not the voice of God speaking to that person. If someone was to come to you and trying to justify any sin in their life, you can understand that the justification is not the voice of... I had a friend in high school tell me one time that God was okay with his use of pornography because he just can't control himself. And he convinced me that the Lord spoke to him in his... Or he tried to convince me that the Lord spoke to him in his quiet time that engaging in this activity was okay because the Lord understood how weak he was. And he was trying to justify this activity. And, and again, that wasn't the voice of God that he was hearing. Because the spiritual gift of prophecy never subtracts from, adds to, or contradicts anything that God has already declared. Those voices are voices that must be shunned. They are voices that must be silenced. They are voices that we must not listen to or heed. The only voice we want to hear is the voice of God. And when it comes to the spiritual gift of prophecy, we understand that this gift always submits to and always serves the authority of Scripture. So we exercise discernment in every situation. In the case of my friend with concealed sin, God made me aware of what was true about his life. Which Scripture says, if it continued, it would destroy him. Scripture also says that we should confess our sins one to another. Scripture also says that we should walk in the light because God is in the light. And so I felt confident that that was from God. In the case of my ministry, the scripture says we should plant churches, make disciples, and live on mission. And he gave me a word through a friend to confirm how God was aligning my life up with that purpose. That's how we discern these dynamics. Prophetic words are timely. Prophetic words are truthful. What they speak must square with what God has already spoken. But then the third dynamic of these kinds of words is that prophetic words are transformative. Prophetic words are always transformative. They hit us in the deep places of the soul when they are received and when they are responded to with faith. They build up our faith. They toast us, so to speak. They make us aware of the intimate love that God has for his kids. I believe the spiritual gift of prophecy is given by God to bridge the gaps that exist between our heads and our hearts. The fact that so often we know that we're loved by God and we, we can become very educated as it comes to theological truths and the reality of what God is like and we can know a lot about him. I believe this gift is especially designed to shift that downward, to move that from your head to your heart, to drop the coin, so to speak, so that God's love is felt by you. God's love is sensed by you. God's love is experienced by you. I believe this gift is uniquely equipped and designed to, to make that happen. This is why we want to pursue it. We want to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts because we want everyone to know how much God loves them. We want everyone to know how God is paying attention to them. We want everyone to know, so we don't want to be afraid of this. We want to press into it in faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his little book, Life Together, he said, the Christ in our own heart is often weaker than the Christ in the word of another. Meaning what, what I know to be true may be there and it may be right, but hearing it from you is a whole not, takes it to a whole nother level. When you speak truth into my life, it causes that truth I already know and believe to come alive. It makes it be internalized and experienced and taken in. You kind of see this transformative dynamic in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when Paul describes what can happen when such words are spoken when we gather even in moments like this. You drop down to verse 25. Listen to what happens to an unbeliever who steps in and they hear this type of thing happening and they see believers ministering to each other in these kinds of ways. Verse 25, the secrets of his heart will be revealed and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. That's transformation. That's a man coming to realize that God is with his people, that God loves his people and something's changing in them. Prophetic words are timely. Prophetic words are truthful. Prophetic words are transformative. Now, a few years ago, I was discouraged, lacking confidence in what God was doing. And as we were in the thick of planting this church, I had lost sight 
of the way God ministered to me through a friend who confirmed God's direction in my life. And we were gathering down at Fremont Baptist Church. And after one of her gatherings, this woman that I'd never met before approached me. And she asked if we could talk. And so we sat down and she looked at me and she said, Now, I know you don't know me, but I believe the Lord led me tonight, led me here tonight. And I want to share with you some of the things the Lord brought to my mind. And then with grace and humility, she began to share. She said that God woke her up the night before, and she had put Isaiah 46 on her heart. So she opened her Bible. She began to read through it, take notes on it. And she began to pray that passage for me and for our church. Now, that night in my sermon, I had spontaneously quoted Isaiah 46. And so when she mentioned this, it really got my attention. And when she opened her journal and I saw the notes that she had taken, that wasn't from the evening. So I knew she was telling the truth. So she proceeded to affirm God's plans and purposes for our church. She assured me that God had not left me or forsaken me, that he was still with me and he was with us, he was with us, and that he intended to use us to make the gospel known in our city. And, and she said all of this, not knowing that I was reaching a low point in my ministry here. Her words were timely. Her words were truthful. Her words smelled like Isaiah 46. The truth of that passage rang in my heart, and therefore they were transformative, right? I found myself being strengthened, encouraged, and consoled in this conversation with this unknown woman. Now, the conversation continued, and she proceeded to warn me of some idols that needed to fall in my life and some idols that needed to fall in our church. Now, at first, I was cynical at that point because I didn't know what she was talking about, and I thought that word was so general it could apply to anyone at any time. You could probably say that to anyone. Hey, there's some idols in your life that need to come down. You'll probably be right, right? Like, that's like throwing a rock in the ocean. You're not going to miss. <laughs> and so she said this, and so I was tempted to dismiss it because uh, I didn't know what she was referring to. And, but then I remembered 1 Thessalonians 5, and I decided instead to test it. I decided instead to hold fast to what was good, to swallow the meat, spit out the bones, so to speak, and and after we spoke, I went home that night. For the next few days, I just began to pray, Lord, I'm sure there are idols in my life, and I'm sure there are idols in our church that need to fall. But if there's something specific that I need to be made aware of, please make that known. And at that point in time, the Lord brought to mind the fear of man. And coming out of that, we decided to do a message series on the fear of man, and we dove into just looking at that and kind of ministering to our souls in light of what the fear of man is and but I'll be honest with you, the ripple effect of that woman's words continues to stir things up today. I believe the fear of man is a particular idol that continues to threaten so much of what God intends to do in and through our church, what God continue, desires to do in and through your life. Specifically, the fear of man prevents some of you from exercising the spiritual gift of prophecy. I believe God has been speaking to some of you in ways that you do not readily recognize as his voice because you've never been taught how to fan into flame the gifts that God is giving you. You hesitate even having a conversation about it because you're afraid of what people might think of you if you start talking in these terms and using this type of language. Perhaps you think to yourself, well, if I share someone the dream I had that concerned them, they're going to think I'm weird. It's going to ruin that relationship. And so the fear of man is preventing some of you from exercising the spiritual gift of prophecy on that level. But then I believe there are some of you where your fears are directed at what your theological peers might think of you. And if I'm going to think about idols in my own life related to this, I think this is where I would be. That I would worry about being lumped in a less theologically respected denomination or a less theologically respected movement. I would worry about being associated with wild, fanatic, charismatic movements that might, have, that might fall into the Corinthian category of needing some correction, needing some education and some training in that direction. And so maybe you are afraid of what your theological peers might think of you. And if I'm honest with my own heart, this is probably where I have been at different points in my life. But here's the challenge to that. If the fear of man is preventing you from moving in this direction and exercising the spiritual gift of prophecy, listening from God, receiving words from him, from others, I believe the fear of man often convinces us that we are being responsible when actually we're being negligent. That the fear of man makes us believe, well, I'm just not doing that because I want to be faithful, I want to be responsible, I don't want to cause any harm, I don't want to do any damage. And we, we justify our inaction through 
by appealing to responsibility, but it's the fear of man that switched responsibility for negligence. We are neglecting to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that we might prophesy, especially that we might receive words from God for others. And if this is where you are today, if this is where our church is, let me, let's remind ourselves that the only thing capable of dispelling the fear of man from our lives is the favor of God. It's internalizing the love that God pours into our lives by way of his Holy Spirit. And there is so much grace for us in this activity. There's so much grace for us in our exercise of spiritual gifts because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, the fear of man has no place among us. The favor of God is ours forever and always in every moment of every day. So we want to pursue love. We want to desire spiritual gifts, especially that we might prophesy. And the reason why we say this is because there's not a single person in this room that's going to grow beyond your need to be ministered to by one another via spiritual gifts. You will never outgrow your need for other Christians ministering to you by way of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might say, well, I've got the Bible. And I would say, yes, that's true. You've got the Bible. But it's the Bible that tells you you need spiritual gifts. It's the Bible that tells you to fan and flame the gifts that God has given you. It's the Bible that tells you to toast others by ministering to them in edifying ways that contribute to their upward mobility. That they would grow in a Godward direction. And God gives so much grace to those who are seeking to obey his word in this direction. If you just think about what a spiritual gift is, just by looking at the etymology in the New Testament, the word translated spiritual gift is charismata, which literally means grace gift. We are talking about movements of the spirit that nobody deserves. Whether you are an abuser or a neglector of spiritual gifts, they are still available to you because they come to you not because you are deserving, not because you are worthy, not because you exercise them perfectly. They come to you by the grace of God. They are grace gifts that come by way of the Holy Spirit. And so when we ask for God to give us spiritual gifts and to work among us, we're asking God to do things that he already wants to do, that he desires to do. And yes, we are prone to make mistakes with them. Yes, we are prone to misuse them. We're not going to get them right every time we try to employ them. But there's grace. And there's not a single mistake you are going to make in this direction that's going to ruin someone's soul for all of eternity. There's not a single mistake you are going to make that's going to destroy the church if you are sincerely and humbly saying, God, I just want to help others. I want to minister to those around me. I want to bring words to people that will give them life and that will help shake things that are holding them back, that will expose the schemes of the enemy and bring about their liberty and their bondage. That is a prayer that God loves to answer. So don't give yourself too much credit of thinking you're going to ruin something. If you start moving in this direction, these are grace gifts, and there's not a single blunder that we do that God's grace isn't capable of compensating for, that God's grace isn't capable of redeeming and restoring. And I believe God would rather us function imperfectly in spiritual gifts than to not use them at all for fear of making mistakes. And so when it comes to pursuing love and desiring spiritual gifts, especially that we might prophesy, let's become intentionally discerning in this direction. But as we do so, we think about this, we we value the toast, let's remember that spiritual gifts are not to be confused with the explicit gospel. We never put our faith in spiritual gifts per se. We never base our relationship with God on the activity of spiritual gifts in our lives or in our church. We do not confuse spiritual gifts with the gospel. Spiritual gifts such as prophecy are important, but only the gospel is ultimate. Spiritual gifts are like the milk in your fridge. They're going to expire. They're not going to last forever. But the gospel, like love, is eternal. And there's coming a day when perfection comes. And faith and hope are needed no more. And when faith and hope are needed no more, spiritual gifts will be unnecessary. We're going to be with Jesus in heaven forever and always. And and the purpose of spiritual gifts would have run their course. But the purpose of God's love that spiritual gifts point us to now, the purpose of that will extend far into eternity. 
So as we start talking about spiritual gifts and we start normalizing these conversations in the life of the church, we start normalizing these practices in the life of the church, understand that we are not confusing spiritual gifts with gospel truths. Spiritual gifts are important, but only the gospel is ultimate. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you help us to think well and to respond well to all that you desire to do in our lives and in our church? I pray, God, that whatever you desire to give us that would help us to grow in an upward direction, that would edify us, that would build up our faith, that would allow us to take up our shields of faith in every situation, I pray, Father, that we would not be negligent of that. I pray, God, that we would lean into that and that you would be gracious to give, gracious to provide, gracious to work things out in accordance with your will. God, we know this to be your will because this is what your scriptures teach, and I pray that you're Holy Spirit would help us to apply, to appropriate, to seize all that you have for us according to your grace given to us in Christ. God, we love you and we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us up, that we might minister to each other well for your glory, for our good, all in the name of Jesus. Amen.